All right, we are getting into our sermon for today. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are in the last, I believe it will be the last three weeks. So today, and then two more messages. Today, we're looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 34. Decent sized chunk of scripture there. Um, and then the rest of chapter 15, and then all of chapter 16. That's my plan. And then we will be able to finish before we have some guest speakers come in this summer as well. And then we will begin a new series uh, in, in, what would that be, in August or, or mid-July or so. So we are really, really coming up on the end here. This is very, very exciting. Um, let me, we just finished chapters 12 through 14, which was on the spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, interpretation of tongues, um, love, uh, and how important it is to use all of our spiritual gifts in love. That's the only way to use them. Paul talked about the importance of the body of Christ, about the diversity that exists within the body, and also the unity of the body. All these things he covered through chapter 12 and 14. Now today, in chapter 15, he's talking about the resurrection. And uh, chapter 15, I would say, it's the last issue, last major issue that Paul is bringing up with the Corinthians. And then chapter 16 is kind of like some, um, you know, uh, miscellaneous, some different loose ends, very important stuff as well. But chapter 15 is the last of these kind of issues that he is discussing with the Corinthians. And it is very, very importantly about the resurrection, about the resurrection. So let me read first, 1 through 34, and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll, we'll get into it. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Simon Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. This is the word of God. Going back up here to chapter one. Wow, that was a, that was a big passage, 34 verses here. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the gospel. Particularly, he's talking about resurrection. Here, he, he talks about this gospel in verse 1 that he preached, that the Corinthians received into their heart, in which they were standing. It was the gospel that was the foundation of their life that they believed, and by which they were being saved. Lest we think that the gospel and being saved means, well, I believed in Jesus 15 years ago, and therefore I am saved no matter what happens from that day forward. No, Paul says, by which you are being saved. What does that mean? What do you mean being saved? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This salvation is not something that we believed in 10 years ago, and therefore it's a get out of jail free card we just keep in our pocket and we go on living our life however we want to live it. Paul says this gospel is something that we need to hold on to to the very end. How are we saved? How do we know that we're saved? We hold on to the very end. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We don't walk away from God. We don't abandon our faith. We continue walking with God to the very end. Now, in this context here, what does it mean to believe in vain? For Paul, in this chapter, it means to not believe in the resurrection. Look at these next verses. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he goes over what? The foundation of the gospel. He says what? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's the gospel, right? Jesus died. He was crucified upon the cross, and he died upon the cross. We remember his death. We proclaim it on Good Friday every year when we come together for a Good Friday service. Jesus um, had the Lord, had Passover meal on Thursday. He was crucified on Friday. He was put into the tomb. He was buried. On Saturday, he was in the tomb. And on Sunday, he rose again from the dead. He died. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. And Paul here is emphasizing how important it is that we believe every aspect of that, including the resurrection. I think the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, gets a lot of uh, airtime. But Paul here is saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is futile. Look at, the, how do I know he's really emphasizing this? Look at what he does in the next few verses. 
What is he doing here when he talks about Jesus appearing to Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, then to James and the other apostles, and then to him? He is, what he's basically saying is, there is so much evidence for the resurrection of Christ. How do we know that? Because so many people saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified. He was resurrected. There is eyewitness, there are eyewitness accounts from over 500 people that Jesus rose from the grave. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus. And you know what? Most of these people are still alive. This letter was probably written about 20 years after Jesus died. So some people died. But most of these people were still alive. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you can go and ask them. (laughs) You can go and ask them, did you see Jesus risen from the grave? And they will tell you, yes, I saw it with my own eyes. He's making a case for the resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. There is eyewitness evidence. You know, eyewitness evidence is... I don't know if it's the most important type of evidence in the court of law. I think it probably would be. It's like probably one of the most important types of evidence in the court of law. I mean, if, if I were on trial, you know, if they said, Ulysses, you did something bad, you're gonna go to jail, and they put me on trial, and I said, no, I'm innocent. And the prosecutor said, do you want a plea bargain? I said, no, I don't want a plea bargain. I'm innocent. Then he says, okay, that's fine. I've got 500 witnesses. They're going to come and take the stand one at a time. And each one of them says, you did it. About that plea bargain. (laughs) Can I see that? Can I discuss that with my lawyer? Case sealed. Over 500 eyewitnesses. Paul is saying, how can you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We say, wow, well, all those people like... Man, they were all in on it together. It's a big conspiracy. Even if that were true, which it is not, how do you explain Paul? Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of the church. He was famous because he thought that Jesus was a heretic. He thought that Jesus' followers were a heretic. This was a heretical branch of Judaism. And he made it his mission in life to go and squash this sect He threw Christians in the jail. He had Christians uh, killed because of their faith in Jesus. How do you explain somebody like Paul who says, I changed my mind because I saw the risen Lord. I saw Jesus resurrected on that Damascus road. We have evidence in history eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. This is why we can believe in Jesus. We have the gospel accounts. It was written down, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that these people saw Jesus raised from the dead, that he indeed was risen. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to get into, you know, there, there, there can be so many objections to that, right? They say, oh, well, why should we believe these people? And and there are books and books written on this. You know, I don't have time to get into it, but, you know, some of these arguments talk about how, how would all, so many of these people be willing to be martyred, to be killed for this Jesus if they thought that he wasn't really risen from the dead, right? I mean, like, if you have a conspiracy going, you know, once you are like on the gallows and about to be hung or about to be killed with the sword for your faith, you kind of like, okay, game's over. It was a lie, I confess. But so many of these people were willing to die. What they saw was so compelling that they were willing to die for it. Why would they do that? I mean, if Jesus somehow got off of the cross and escaped it and he showed up, on the third day in front of the disciples and he was like, I, I was dead, but I'm risen. And he's like bleeding out of the spear wound on his side and his hands are goo- oozing with blood and there's infections and he's covered with these sores and these wounds. Would any disciple believe that he was raised from the dead? They would say, I don't know how you got off that cross. <laughs> 
that's pretty amazing, but raised from the dead, I don't think so. You managed to survive, but you are not risen from the dead. Or if Jesus really did die and his body was still there, why didn't the Jews just produce his body and just end this whole thing? Raised from the dead? Nope. Right here, ladies and gentlemen, come into the town square. All of you, you can see Jesus' dead body right here and let us debunk that myth. And there are books and books that talk about this. I don't have time to go into all that, but there were, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. And this was written down for us. How do we know anything that happened in history, throughout history? For the most part, it was written down for us. That's how we know things that happened in the past. It was written down. There's archaeology or things like that. But so much of what we know from ancient history it comes to us from what was written. Now, some of us may say, you expect me, a modern human being, to believe that from some old parchments written on goat skin? You want me to put my life, to bet my life on that? Come on. I need something more. Show me more evidence. What evidence do you want? You want photos? You want video in 4K of Jesus rising from the grave? That's not going to do it, especially nowadays. I mean, look at, our, look at the things in our headlines now. Oh, go back one. There. Look at the news now. Go back one slide. Look at the type of news that we see. All, you, just, you just Google a little bit. It's all over the place. Scientific Americans. Spot the fake. Artificial intelligence can produce lifelike photographs. New York Times, can we no longer believe anything we see? Which of these two photos was real and which one's fake? I can't tell. I don't even know if you can see it up here, but it's all over the place. Imagine what this technology is going to be like in five years or 100 years. In five years, definitely in 100 years, let's say there was photographic evidence of Jesus rising from the grave. Let's say there were videos of Jesus rising from the grave. And I said, believe in Jesus. He was resurrected. He is God. What would people say? You expect me to believe that generative AI video? <laughs> you expect me to believe? My kid can make that. He made that in kindergarten. 100 years from now, probably. Very real. You, you expect me to believe that. Come on, man. So the question is this. What do you want to believe? How, how can God show you that Jesus was risen from the grave? I have an idea. We need to figure out how to travel faster than the speed of light so that we could take people on tourism trips into the past. We can travel back in time so that we can be there, see Jesus hanging from the grave, see him put in the tomb, see him come out of that on Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then I will believe. That's what I will do. Unless that happens, I won't believe. We'll also screw up the metaverse and all the strands of time and everything. I don't believe in the metaverse. Is that what we need? I, I don't know. Maybe 100 years from now, if we're able to do that, people say, you expect me to believe what that machine's going to do? I'm going to travel back in the past? That's a master simulation. You're going to accept my mind. I don't think it'll ever end, friends. What if, I'm just throwing this out there, what if the resurrection taking place before the digital era was actually a really, really good thing? What if that's a really good thing? That hundreds of people, many of them there, who saw this man hanging on the cross, and then what they saw on the third day, or whenever Jesus appeared to them, what they saw was so convincing that many of them died for it. I think that is compelling evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if, you're, if you're a skeptic, if you, you know, um, I would just ask you, what would it take for you to believe that God raised Christ from the dead? Just the question. I think we need to ask. For Paul, for him, he speaks to the Corinthians. He said, we saw him. We saw him. He rose from the dead. How can you say there is no resurrection? Now, 
In verse 12, this is what people were saying. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Now, one question is, why were people saying that there's no resurrection from the dead? I think for those of us here who are Christians, we take the resurrection as something for granted, right? Of course there's a resurrection. Yes, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. Why would people not believe that there's a resurrection? Well, we know that this is not new. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. You know, the Pharisees, they believed there was a resurrection. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. And that's why they're called Sadducees, because they were sad, you see, right? Because they believed there was no resurrection. That's actually Greek exegesis there. No, it's not. But the Sadducees, remember, they came to Jesus. They said, this guy, he was married. They had no kids. He died. Then his brother married his wife. They had no kids, and he died. Then seven brothers did this. None of them had a kid with this woman in heaven. Who is she going to be married to? And then Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. There is no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. Remember that? The Sadducees were there saying there's no resurrection. I think it's also probably because for a lot of these Christians, they thought that Jesus was coming back really soon. Like when Jesus said, I'll be back, like, like back next week back. Back maybe in a few months back. Back maybe in a few years back. Probably not back in 2,000 years and we're still waiting for him to come back type of back. So they didn't really have this understanding or, or theology of resurrection really worked out yet. They didn't, you know, they were thinking he's going to be back before we die for most of them. It also probably was because in the Greco-Roman world, in their, the philosophical environment that they were steeped in, the Platonic philosophy that looked down upon the physical things and elevated the spiritual things, for them, in that society, the, the body, the flesh, these things were looked down on. The idea of having this body back, resurrection body, and just having this body forever was, was something that was like, no way, man. Why would I want this body? If you remember from chapter 6, that's why Paul had to say sexual immorality is not okay. What you do with your body does matter. In chapter 8, he said, you can't eat this food sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter that it's just physical food. You can't just do that. It affects us in the spiritual realm as well. There were people there who might have looked down upon the physical. And for whatever reason, they were thinking there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then even Jesus has not been raised my preaching is useless, your believing in you is useless, and in verse 17 he says, you are still in your sins. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. Now, I had to, I had to wrestle with that one because it didn't make sense to me. What do you mean, Paul, that we're still in our sins? Even if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, didn't his death pay for my sins? He died. He died the death I was supposed to die. So shouldn't my sins still be paid for? After all, in Romans 5, it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It was by his blood, his death, that we were justified. What do you mean, I am still in my sins if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave. Imagine that I was on death row and for some reason the country that we lived in let me avoid execution if somebody else was willing to be executed in my place. Imagine that. So I'm about to be executed and a friend of mine comes and says, Ulysses, I will die for you instead. And I say, no, no, please. Okay, fine. And he comes in and he dies in my place. And then I go, wow, my friend died for me. My debt to society has been paid. I can walk off as a free man. And then the judge says, no, 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 Ulysses. Unless your friend comes back to life, you also are going to get executed. I'd be like, what? What are you talking about, man? My debt to society was paid by my friend. Uh, why do I have to pay? You want him to come back to life? That doesn't make sense. He paid my debt, right? That's, that's what I was like. What do you mean? What do you mean if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that I'm still in my sins. He died for my sins. Well, this is, what, this is what I think Paul means, what the Bible means, what God means, and why the resurrection is so important. Paul wrote to Timothy this. He said that Jesus 
was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. That's the important part there that I want to highlight. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He was vindicated. It proved something about him. What did Jesus' resurrection do to vindicate him? Why was he vindicated through his resurrection? Well, in Romans 8, Paul wrote this, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How was Jesus vindicated? Because what it's saying is this, Jesus came in the form of a man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He came to us in the likeness of sinful flesh. But what the Bible needs us to understand, what his resurrection shows us, is that he was not a sinner like the rest of us. Even though he was a man, he took the form of sinful flesh. He himself never sinned. He condemned sin in the flesh, but he himself was not condemned for his own sin. He was condemned for our sin. Lest we look on the cross and the death of Jesus and say that he died because of his own sin, because he was a condemned man because of his sin, no, his resurrection vindicated him. In chapter 1 of Romans, it says, Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What the resurrection does is it declares to, this, to the world, this man who died did not die because he deserved it, did not die because of his own sin. He died because of our sin. Death could not hold him because he was innocent. He was the pure son of God. He had no sin. That's why death could not hold him. And he was raised on the third day because he was righteous. And the sins that he died for or were for the people who would put their faith in him. What it says to us, brothers and sisters, is that he is the right guy. He was sinless. He was the right and just sacrifice for us. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then he, he died for his own sins. He was not a sufficient sacrifice for us and our forgiveness. A Swiss theologian, Frederick Louis Gooday, he put it so succinctly and so well. He said this, Christ dead without resurrection would be a condemned, not a justified Christ. How could he justify others? Brothers and sisters, it's a package deal. Jesus rose from the dead, and it proves to us that his sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sin. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We cannot just believe that he died upon the cross, but also that he rose from the dead in order to be saved. Brothers and sisters, if this is not true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then as Paul says in verse 19, we are to be the most pitied of all people. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if only in this life we have hope in Jesus, we are to be the most pitied of all people. And this is true, brothers and sisters, because the more you grow in maturity, the more you grow in holiness and in your pursuit of God and becoming more and more like Christ, it, the, your life will be, will be filled with more sacrifice, more denial of yourself, more taking up your cross, dying to yourself and following Jesus. And if we do all of that, but there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied. If those people in the early church who were fed to the lions, if Jesus isn't real, if there's no resurrection, they are to be pitied. 
Those who were flayed and whipped until their skin came off their back and they were killed, they are to be pitied. Those who were hung upon poles and covered in oil and lit on fire to be torches for Nero because they were Christians, human torches, they are to be pitied above all people. Perhaps if we, if we think, well, you know, if the resurrection is, isn't real, it's okay. At least it's still a good set of morals to live by. I still made a lot of friends. It's a nice social network. Um, that's only because maybe we have not yet come to the point of taking up our cross more and more, of laying down our lives for the gospel. But Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If we follow Christ, it will be a life of sacrifice and of self-denial. And if this resurrection is not real, we are to be pitied above all people. But Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. It is true. It is real. The tomb is empty. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, he calls him an interesting thing here. He says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for those who have died. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. What does he mean by that? Paul is referring back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, where God tells the people there are certain feasts and festivals that you need to keep every year in honor of me. And one of them is called the Feast of the First Fruits. Let me just read this background because it's important for us to understand. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. What's happening here? Basically, what Moses told the people, what God told Moses to tell the people was, there's going to be one of these festivals. It's called the Feast of First Fruits. And when the grain, the first grain of your harvest becomes ripe, you are not to eat anything yet. You must take the first ripe grain and you bring it to the temple and you offer it to God as an offering to him. Why do they do that? Because it's a way of honoring God with their first fruits. That was the first fruits, the first ripe grain to honor God with their first fruits. And it also was a way of declaring their trust in God that just as they presented God with the first fruits, God was going to provide the rest of the harvest. It was a way of honoring God and a way of declaring trust in God. God, just as you gave us these first fruits, we give it to you and we trust that you are the Lord of the harvest and you will provide the rest of the harvest for us as well. It was a statement of faith that they did at the Feast of First Fruits. Friends, Jesus is called the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits from the dead, because just as Jesus was resurrected, as surely as God raised Jesus from the dead, if we put our faith in him, we will surely be raised from the dead as well. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead. And anybody who has faith in him will also come as the rest of the harvest. When Christ returns, we will certainly also be raised from the dead. This is so certain. Paul says, it's as certain as this. For as by a man came death, Adam, as surely as Adam's sin brought death into this world, isn't it true? Everybody dies. As they say, there's only two certain things in this life, death 
and taxes. As surely as Adam has sinned and brought death into the world, everybody dies. Do you know anybody who has never died? Nobody. Nobody. Everybody dies. Okay, maybe Enoch. He got taken up to heaven by God, but he was no longer living on this earth. Okay, don't get technical with me. Nobody lives forever. How certain is it that you will die 100%? How certain is it that I will die 100%? How certain is it that everybody in this world will die 100%? As certain as it is that Adam's sin led to death in this world for all people, it is just as certain that Jesus' resurrection will lead to resurrection and life for everybody who belongs to Christ. It is that certain. And you know what else, brothers and sisters, that is so cool? The Feast of the First Fruits took place during the week of unleavened bread. So how the calendar worked was this. The week of unleavened bread began with Passover. It began with Passover. And then after Passover, it would be the week of unleavened bread. And then it says, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. That's the Sabbath of the week of unleavened bread. What does that mean? It means Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday, the day of Passover. He was betrayed. He was crucified on Friday. We remember that in Good Friday. He was buried. On Saturday, he was in the tomb, the day of the Jewish Sabbath. And on the day after the Sabbath, on Sunday, the first day of the week, which was also the feast of the first fruits, Jesus rose from the grave. Is that a coincidence? Or is that God, is that God? declaring to us that beyond the shadow of a doubt that just as Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe in him, you will rise from the dead as well. Jesus, the first fruits, and then us, the harvest at the second coming of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we hold on to our faith, that this resurrection, that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is coming again, then we as well will be resurrected into eternal life and into a kingdom, as Paul describes here, where God will be the only one ruling and reigning, where there will be no more sin, no more crime, no more selfishness, no more hunger, no more backstabbing, no more lying, where there is no more death as well, no more disintegration and deterioration of our bodies, no more disease, no more sickness, no more death, but only life everlasting. That is the kingdom that we will be resurrected into. It is guaranteed. Christ the firstfruits, then the harvest. Brothers and sisters, this is how we as believers can live differently today. We need to know this. Paul even says to the Corinthians, you you guys kind of know this. Otherwise, why are people baptized in behalf of the dead? I know that's, that's one of those really weird passages. What in the world is he talking about? Well, Paul's not condoning people getting baptized for the dead. Basically, what probably was happening was people started dying Jesus didn't come back as quickly as they thought that he would. Some people might have died before they got a chance to be baptized, and people are freaking out. They don't don't know what to do. And they say, well, why don't we have brother so-and-so be baptized for brother so-and-so who passed away? And Paul's saying, he's not condoning that, but he's saying, look, the very fact that you do that, doesn't that show that you think that there's going to be a resurrection? Why would you be baptizing somebody on behalf of the dead if you thought that dead was dead for good? It shows that you believe in the resurrection. And more importantly, look at Paul's life. He says, if the resurrection is not real, why am I in danger every hour? Why did I go fight wild beasts in Ephesus? Whatever that means. 
It probably wasn't him being thrown into the arena. It was probably the, the type of spiritual warfare or opposition that he faced in preaching the gospel. We know Paul. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. Why would he do that if there was no resurrection? Paul says, I die every day. I die every day. Brothers and sisters, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we begin to live in that way? To actually, when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. How does somebody actually do that? How does somebody actually look at their life and say, it's worth nothing to me? I can throw it all away for the sake of the gospel. Nothing in this world will have a hold of me. How can, it, how can we actually live that way? Do you ever feel like, is that really realistic? How can we die every day? It only happens when we have the resurrection life in view. When it is something more real than just concept, just theory. When it is something that we behold before us when it is something that we see and that we, we look forward to, that we long for, that we long for that, that life and that time where our body was no longer decay, where Christ, his rule and his reign is over all authority, over everything in this world, and there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, and that that is the life to come. And we realize that this life is so short. It's so insufficient and we be, are able, are empowered to live for the life to come. The problem is, brothers and sisters, we are too short-sighted. If there's no resurrection, then you know what? Like the Corinthian slogan goes, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the way we should live, right? If there's no resurrection, this life is all that I have, man, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get as much wealth and comfort. I'm going to avoid as much pain as possible. I'm going to experience as much human love as I can. I'm going to be as healthy as I can be. I'm going to do everything that I can to push off death because this is all I have. YOLO, you only live once? Die for God? Why would I do that? But brothers and sisters, when we, when we can't, when we do not have the resurrection before us, the temptation to live that way becomes really strong, doesn't it? And, and what I'm saying is, if you find yourself struggling, why is, why is the appeal of this world so strong? Why is it that it's so hard for me to say no to sin and to say yes to God? Why is it so hard to deny myself and to take up my cross and follow Jesus? I think maybe part of the reason is we're not thinking about the resurrection. We're not gazing upon it. We're not in love with it. We're not longing for it. Like the disciples, we're, we're not saying like the disciples, come Lord Jesus. I can't wait for this life to end and for eternity to begin. Brothers and sisters, let me conclude with... Um, a story that I recently read from a magazine, Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if any of you get this. It's a really good magazine. It, it talks about stories of Christians around the world who are, who are suffering in different ways. And it's a good reminder that there are many people in the world right now taking up their cross in a very real and literal way for the sake of Christ. It's about a man in uh, Tanzania. His name is Tomastocles. I don't know if I'm butchering that. I don't know if that's Swahili or what that is. Tomastocles. Temistocles. Okay, let's go with Temistocles. This man, Temistocles, who became a Christian, and he became a very devoted Christian, and his church began having an all-night prayer meeting, and he committed to going to this all-night prayer meeting for six months. So this prayer meeting had been going on for two months to this point of the story, and, and um, he'd been going, praying through the night, and, and him and another friend and some other people from the church would go. Now, 
uh, word of this prayer meeting got out in the town and the surrounding area where they lived, and it was not a, um, a solely Christian environment. There were other religions in this place, and uh, one night, two months into this prayer meeting, they were there praying, him and a friend of his, and apparently, they didn't know this, but earlier in the day, there was another religious gathering from a different religion uh, about a mile away, and a swarm of bees flew in and disrupted that meeting. And now the people of this other religious faith concluded that this was happening because of the prayers of these Christians, that these Christians were cursing them, and that's why this swarm of bees went into their place of meeting. They didn't like that. So in the middle of the night, a group of men armed with machetes went over to this prayer meeting. And they went in, it was dark in there as um, Themistocris was praying and a friend of his was praying and they attacked them. Uh, they killed his friend. Um, Themistocris survived, but he survived by blocking his body with his arms so the machete was basically just cutting into his arms. He had machete hackings all over his body one of his feet was almost severed at the ankle. He lost a piece of his thumb. He didn't know what happened to his friend at first. He crawled out of the church. He managed to escape in the darkness. And he dragged himself on the road looking for help. A woman eventually found him, gave him water. He survived. He went to the hospital. Uh, when he was in the hospital, he needed 10 surgeries. He had infections. While he was in the hospital, people came and, and brought juice for him, gave it to his wife, Deborah, brought juice for him, brought food for him. Um, his wife kind of, I don't know, realized something in the spirit or, or God was guiding her, but she asked one of the, the men who brought the juice, who, who's that juice from? And then the man ran. And uh, the police checked it and the juice was poisoned. And they checked later and they found food that was poisoned as well that was dropped off, uh, probably to try to keep him from testifying against anybody who might be caught in, in this case. So they tried to kill him. Now it says, while, to Mr. Chris, while he was early in his hospitalization, while he was in the hospital, still there, I don't know if he, didn't, if he was gonna make it or he was still recovering early on, he began to think about this question, how can he thank God for all that God has done for him in saving his life, in God showing his grace to him? So he, Themistocris and his wife Deborah, decided to donate their land to the church as an offering of thanksgiving. It says, church members wept when they heard about the gift, but to, but to Mysticris's family members struggled to understand why a man with such severe injuries would give away his most valuable possession. Quote, my father told me, I heard that you offered the plot to the pastor, to Mysticris said. I answered my father, I didn't give to the pastor. I gave my plot to the Lord. Themistocris later decided to leave his job as a stonemason and actually became a pastor as well. And today is pastoring a church of, of 71 members and, and 150 children who attend regularly. Friends, uh, if, if the resurrection is not real, Themistocris is to be pitied. He is to be pitied. Why would a man who was almost killed while praying to his God, a friend of his died, he was almost killed. He could have said, God, why didn't you protect me? And then when he was in the hospital, people tried to poison him. In that situation, he begins to think, how can I thank God? And him and his wife, Deborah, together decide that they're gonna thank God by giving away their most valuable possession, their plot of land, to the Lord. And then after that, he says, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to become a pastor and continue to serve God. If the resurrection is not real, brothers and sisters, Themistocris is to be pitied above all men. Him and his wife are to be pitied above all people in that village because they live a life of suffering for naught. But friends, if the resurrection is real, Themistocris is to be envied. And I mean envied in a good way. Because here is a man who is living not for today, who has realized, I am dead to myself in this life, but I am alive to eternity. This life is nothing to me. 
I will live forever. And he became free to live that way. Brothers and sisters, has the love of money, wealth, and comfort gripped you? Set your mind on the resurrection. Where in the resurrection life, there is treasure in heaven for those who lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth. And you will be freed from the grip of the love of money. Brothers and sisters, has your physical condition, your chronic conditions and illnesses and and pains in your body and diseases, cancer, has that discouraged you? Set your mind on the resurrection body that is to come that will never decay, that will never die, that will live forever, that will not grow old or weary. To be set free from the discouragement of this body, this outward tent that is wasting away, as Paul said. Brothers and sisters, has the approval of man Has the approval of society trapped you? Trapped you into compromise? Trapped you into silence and fear of following Jesus? Let the resurrection free you from the fear of shame in this life. Because the name, living for the name of Jesus in this life means glory, means a crown of glory in the resurrection in life in the life that awaits. Brothers and sisters, when we can see the resurrection, we can actually live that life where we say, I die every day. I count my life as nothing if I could finish this race for the sake of Christ Jesus, my Lord.